and welcome to the So Novel Podcast. I'm your host Jess and in this fortnightly podcast I will be chatting all things books as well as interviews with authors, publishers and bookstagrammers. So whether you're looking for your next read or you want to know the story behind the story then this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome to our March Book Club chat. Our March Book Club was none other than Below Deck by Sophie Hardcastle. I do apologize for the delay of this episode. We had to reschedule so many times for incidents that were just completely out of anyone's control. So I do apologize for that. In today's chat, we talk about the writing and structure of Below Deck. We chat about the big topics in the book, including sexual violence and consent and climate change. And we also chat about that ambiguous ending. Also, a big thank you to She Reads Adelaide for sending through her five-star review, which is featured at the end of the chat. Here is Sophie. Hi, Sophie, and welcome to the Sonable podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, first question, what are you currently reading? I am reading, I've just finished reading In the Dream House um, by Carmen Maria Machado. And I've also just finished reading a book called Exist Otherwise, and that's The Life and Works of Claude Kahn, who was a French artist. Um, And I've just started reading Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl. Oh, I haven't heard of that one either. It's incredible. Yeah, I'm about 100 pages in and absolutely loving it. Wow. What did you think of In the Dream House? Because I thought that book was just mind-blowing, so powerful. So powerful. Um, I'm actually doing a PhD in creative writing at the moment and that's one of the texts I think that I'll probably end up focusing the critical component of my PhD on. yeah, it was brilliant. So, um, so intelligent, so wise, so much wordplay, which I really loved. Like the experimentation with different, um, like form and the structure was just, yeah, incredible. It was unlike any memoir I've ever read before. Yeah, me too. That was the first um, book of hers that I had read. So I wasn't really sure what I was going into, but yeah, it was incredible. So, different but like you said yeah just how she played on the words and the the structure and that it it she pulled it off big time now we're going to discuss your latest release below deck which was our so novel march book club pick so can you tell us a bit about the book for those who don't know sure so below deck sort of charts the 20s of our main character olivia It crosses three oceans and four continents, I think. Um, And basically this book looks at um, the aftermath of sexual violence and, yeah, its repercussions. It's set at sea, so it's her working on various yachts around the world and she she experiences sexual violence and then it's about the aftermath and reclaiming her body and her story. Now, first off about the book, I wanted to talk about the structure of the book. So the book is separated into four parts, which resemble four significant parts of Ollie's life. So they are named Sea Garden, Sea Monsters, Desert and Sea Ice. 
We then have the chapters, which are titled as well, as opposed to just being numbered. From a writing perspective, can you tell us why you chose to structure the book this way as opposed to just having the generic numbered titles? Yeah, of course. Um, I think in terms of like looking at the each individual chapter having a title, um, I'm not exactly sure. I think that just came from where or books that I really like reading. Like I like... Um, I like having a title and then I like working your way through the chapter and sort of finding the moment at which the title of that chapter makes sense. If that, yeah, if that made any sense in itself. Um, but I think overall the the broad structure of the novel, having it separated into four parts. I wrote this while I was studying at Oxford and I was studying theory of the novel um, as one of my subjects. <clears throat> Sorry. And I was really interested in sort of thinking about the novel as it had been formed over many years, um, predominantly by authors that were men, certainly in the English-speaking world, in the English language. And so I was very interested in what would it look like if a woman, um, like like how I I was looking at specific women writers who at the turn of the 20th century had decided that they wanted to come up with a way of writing that was innately woman and in order to write a woman's sentence. Um, And though now in the context of the 21st century with how we understand gender and sexuality, although their project kind of falls into this, you know, bodily essentialism saying, um, you know, they were cisgendered women that were writing these stories I was still interested in in that project and and what it looks like. So for Ollie, Ollie is a cisgendered woman, meaning she identifies with the same gender as what she was assigned at birth. And I was interested in um, on two levels. One, this um, idea that many of these women writers at the turn of the twentieth century were floating. So they were interested in cyclical narratives. Um, and stories looping back on themselves. And they attributed that to menstrual cycles, which, as we know, not every person that menstruates um, is a woman and not every woman menstruates. However, I was interested in this play with time um, and how the story might loop back on itself and to break the story apart and tell it in kinds of episodes rather than one linear narrative, which is, I guess, the the norm that we've always had to play with. Um, And so I was interested in how, I guess, the second part of this is that Maggie, one of the sort of mentor characters that exists in the book for Ollie, um, she talks often about rebirth and death and there being many beginnings and many endings within one lifetime. And so I, in order to, like, by structuring the book in that way, there are many beginnings to the book and many endings um, so I really liked sort of toying with that on those two in those two ways. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So it's kind of like four stories, kind of, of this one character in the one book, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like we kind of go in and out of her life at sort of key and key moments in her twenties. Um, and I really like that each story is kind of contained. And I remember not only from editors, but also from readers kind of having this criticism of, but we want to know what happens in the middle years. Um, and I, I quite liked that we get these glimpses 
Um, Virginia Woolf once wrote in an essay, I think it was modern fiction, about fiction being not um, signed or that stories are not signposted by these, you know, 20% of the way in we have a catalyst and that sets the hero out on their journey, but rather that real life exists in these kind of really erratic moments of, and she describes them as lampposts where they're kind of, you know, these bursts of information or bursts of story um, in, in that way that, you know, you never know the most significant day of your life is you can't plan where that's going to be necessarily. And so, um, yeah, I really liked that idea that we get glimpses or these kind of like bursts of light from Ollie's, Ollie's life. Yeah, I really enjoyed how you structured it like that as well because I guess even when you're reading, you know, I guess a normal, in inverted commas, book, uh, novel, even though there's an ending to it, that's not really the ending. Like, you know, th- there's still a story that comes after that. So I, I like that um, ambiguous ending and, you know, making your own mind up as as to what you think the inverted commas again ending is for Ollie and yeah I I really liked it I was actually really surprised when I seen as you said you know some of the readers were like oh what happened in between and it's like does it matter what happened in between (laughs) yeah I also really like this I mean as a reader first and foremost like I love stories where I'm forced to or, or not even forced but where there's space for me to sort of embellish or, or sort of fill in the gaps. Mm. Um, yeah, I guess I wanted that for, for my readers. Absolutely. Now, you were just talking about how you studied at Oxford. Tell us, how did that come about? That is such an amazing opportunity. Yeah, it was incredible. So the the scholarship that I got was to study as a provost scholar um, and a provost uh, in most of the colleges at Oxford. So Oxford, I think, is made up of 32 colleges. And you are a member of the college, like under the umbrella of Oxford University. It's a different system to to any of the universities, I think, that we have in Australia. And the provost is like the principal or the head of the college um, for most of them. Some of them have different names, but but at my college, the provost was the head. Um, And so he set up this scholarship with a few donors from Australia who had studied at Oxford and, you know, it had changed their lives in immeasurable ways. And um, so basically he he gathered a bunch of people that now had money and they put it into this fund where they chose Australasian students, so two from Australia and one from New Zealand, to essentially go and study for a year absolutely whatever you wanted. Um, And so I took, my background was in visual arts, but I took all subjects um, in English literature. And then in my final term, I was asked to write a, like a thesis or a dissertation based off my research. And I asked if I could write a novel instead. Um, and Below Deck was what came of that. They let me write Below Deck instead of a paper, which was very exciting. Yeah, that is amazing. How do you think that changed? Because this isn't your first novel, is it? No. No. So how do you think that um, changed your writing compared to your previous novels by studying whilst you were developing it? Yeah. I mean, immensely it changed my writing style. I think it was for the first time ever I was, um, well, I guess like I said, Breathing Underwater was my first novel that I wrote and that was a young adult novel. And I 
kind of wrote it in a vacuum in that, um, of course, I'd read other books, but I'd never really, I mean, to be honest, I didn't read that much when I was a, when I was a teenager. I um, was doing every sport under the sun and that was my passion. Like I thought I was going to be a pro surfer. And yeah, if you told me when I was 15 that I was going to be an author instead, I would have like killed over because <laughs> I was just like so hell-bent on being a pro surfer. Um, and so when I wrote Breathing Underwater, I think it was great in one sense because I was able to sort of like find my own voice without being too influenced by other people. But at the same time, I mean, I wrote like in the YA genre without actually understanding or thinking about any of the tropes that um, or any of the rules that kind of structure that genre. Um, and so then when I went to Oxford, I was studying 20th century poetry, theory of the novel, literature of the environment, um, and film aesthetics. And this meant that for the first time I was thinking about the canon of English literature, um, something that I didn't even know what that meant, let alone what existed inside of it. And so it was definitely jumping in the deep end and suddenly, you know, for my first essay in the 20th century poetry, I was asked to write an essay on T.S. Eliot and I was like, okay, well, everything that I was reading was saying that he changed, you know, he revolutionised poetry and I was like, well, okay, cool, but I don't know what poetry was before that Um, and how did he change it if I don't know what it was to begin with? Um, And so it was this huge exercise in understanding what had come before me and my professor when I was studying visual arts always used to say this where he'd be like you have to know the history and your lineage and you have to know these um this art in order and know the rules of this art in order to break it because otherwise you you know you're kind of walking around in the dark and you're not making any conscious decisions to break with tradition and I think that's definitely what studying at Oxford gave me it was this um like it 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 taught me this lineage and this backlog um, of texts. And then when I was thinking about Below Deck, I was making very conscious decisions as to how I wanted to write it and how I wanted to do it differently and what genre I wanted to situate it in. And yeah, just kind of like understanding all this, everything from its style to its structure. Um, yeah, I think that all came from from just reading other people's work. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you were just speaking about you being a pro surfer. So the ocean comes up in a lot of the chapter titles, and I think it's almost a character in itself in the book. How did you develop the ocean as a character, and what's your relationship with the ocean? Yeah, I think, I mean, this, I I just can't seem to write away from it. the ocean for me, like my mum took me into the sea when I was like two days old and um, this wave came that was bigger than she anticipated and she fell over like with me in her arms and she kind of like stuck me up and thrust me through the surface and my dad grabbed me. And then when she came up, like, and I don't believe this at all, but she was like, you were laughing. And she said that from from that day on, she knew that I was going to be like a child of the ocean and that was going to be, a, you know, a big thing for me. Um, and as I grew up, that, that like completely rang true. Um, yeah, I was like swimming in the ocean every day. And then when I was seven, started surfing and then that became my whole world. 
also my parents had been professional sailors before I was born so we spent a lot of time at sea um and then I I did several yacht deliveries in order to research um below deck and to actually experience what it's like to live at sea um and so yeah I think I think my whole life really has either been in or around the sea and the sea has kind of been you know that anchor and that something that I've um both feared and revered in that I feel most at home in the sea but at the same time I also like have this deep respect for this body of water that has the potential to drown you um and I've always always loved that tension of something that I both love and um fear because I know my limits and I know how fierce the ocean can be um and so yeah I feel like it's always been a kind of guiding principle if you like um yeah and and so I think like the book that I'm now writing is set in a city and yet my metaphors just always seem to be coming back to something ocean related and I think that's because yeah it's like this body of water that I in so many ways live and breathe and it's um and because my life has always circled around it yeah I I find and because my body has has spent so much time in the sea I think the metaphors that arise out of my body are deeply connected to that yeah absolutely now, I don't think we can talk about the book without talking about how Ollie views the world through colour. So is this something you experience as well or what was the purpose of including this in the story? So I, I have synesthesia and I experience colour when I listen to music and also when I um, some smells have colours for me, but um, the main thing is like a, a touch like um different or pain and pleasure both have like very different color spectrums I guess um and so anything from having like I don't know cramps are like a particular color um having sex is a particular color like um so like all of these sensory yeah all all of this like touch sense um is vibrantly colourful for me and it wasn't until I was at university studying visual arts that I read an essay about another artist that had synesthesia and for the first time was like what like is that not normal and and I guess your lived reality unless you compare it to someone else's like there's no way of gauging what is normal quote unquote Mm um yeah and so that that was like with this book, I think because even though it was fiction, it was still deeply personal. And so I kind of just naturally started writing um, for the first time through that synesthesia where um, the various experiences that Ollie has, I was just writing exactly how I see the world in those moments. And it wasn't until my professor kind of flagged it and was like, this is so unusual. I've never read this before. What is this? And I was like, explained what synesthesia was. And he was like, well, why don't you make this, you know, actually the framework, I guess, through which, or the lens through which your character sees the world. And so I gave, I don't know if that's the way you describe that, but I gave Ollie synesthesia. And then, um, yeah, I, it was really liber- quite liberating for me because I 
wrote for the first time just in like my truth or the way that I actually experienced the world. And so the writing flowed out of me in this really seamless, quite effortless way, I think, because I was writing through that lens. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I think you could tell that as well, because for someone who doesn't experience that, like it was quite in depth what you went into and how Ollie experiences it. And I guess, as you said, the different um, colours, like, you know, it wasn't just a pink, it was, you know, a a vibrant pink or a pale pink as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah. (laughs) Now, let's talk about some of the, again, in inverted commas, big topics that are in the book. So I wanted to chat with you about a few of these and I thought we might progress through them in the order that they appear in the book. Mm -hmm. So first up, let's talk about the patriarchy. So Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the book, we are introduced to Ollie's boyfriend, Adam, or as I referred to him the whole way through as asshole Adam. That (laughs) guy just made my blood boil. (laughs) And then we also have Ollie's father and I guess, maybe to an extent her grandfather who fits into this as well and now like as you said before a lot of this book is based on your story and your experiences tell us about the development of these characters and the message that they portray yeah sure so I think Adam first and foremost was introduced actually quite late like he played a very 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 minor role in the first draft um and then I kind of fleshed out their relationship um with the I guess advice or encouragement from my editors and publisher um which I think I think it was beneficial in the end to the story um I guess the question that he or that I was interested in exploring through his character was you know if like, okay, so I heard Andrew Denton speak at Sydney Writers Festival maybe in, like, 2016, um, and he was speaking about euthanasia, and he made this comment that, um, like, in the context of euthanasia, he was, like, killing someone and facilitating their death in a humane way um, are two ends of a spectrum, and they're technically the same thing when you take them out of context. Um in that you are, this person has died at your hands. Um, so technically the same thing, but wildly different when when they're placed in context. Um, and he said in the same way, sexual violence and making love to someone, if you, you know, are completely back and divorced from it, might technically be seen as the same thing when they're taken out of context. So obviously when they are in context, um, the physical act is like completely different and that sex and sexual violence, it is not sex. It is an act of abuse and violence. And so like, yeah, I'm not trying to say at all, uh, I'm not trying to equate them, but I've found this idea really interesting that, you know, th- these two acts might sit on a line at like polar opposite ends. And if you're, you know, having sex for the first time and you're with a partner like Adam that, you know, is not particularly respectful of your boundaries or of your body, how when you don't have the life experience to to know what these um, what this spectrum looks like, where do you place that experience? 
Um, and so I was quite interested in, in, you know, when she has sex with Adam, it is consensual. It's not sexual violence. Um, and yet it's also not really making love to someone like it's, it's doesn't have that, um, deep and unswerving respect, but he doesn't have a deep and unswerving respect for her body or her boundaries or her, or her story. Um, and so I was interested in this kind of like how, how when she's young, you know, she's like, I think 21 when, when we meet her and she is with Adam and it's not a particular, like it's quite a toxic relationship. Um, and he is, you know, playing out a lot of these uh, tropes that I don't even know whether to call them tropes, but there's, you know, young men um, making decisions that are quite toxic or, you know, toxic masculinity. Mm. Um, and, or he's like taking part in this toxic masculinity and, yeah, so I was, like, interested in without her knowing what it's like to be with someone that that does love her deeply in a really healthy and supportive way, how can she sort of decide that this is bad for her? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was quite interested in that question. And then you also mentioned, um, yeah, I guess it's, like, how does she know that this is bad for her when she's got nothing to compare it to was the question. And then the role of the father... Um, I guess in a similar way, you know, she doesn't have a particularly great role model, um, seeing the way that the dad treats mum. Again, not a great role model. She, that then means that she doesn't have this, like, gauge then of what a healthy, like, um, reciprocal, like, a relationship in which respect is reciprocated. Um, yeah, and so he functioned in that way, but then he also functioned in that he's the head of an oil company um, and funnily enough, and I don't think many people um, maybe realise this, but, like, I started writing this book because I wanted to write a book about climate change um, oh. and that the, like, kind of the way that um, patriarchy manifests in this book was meant to be... Um, symbolic for the like like post-enlightenment um way of thought that others the environment and the non-human in a similar way to how it others women um and so that was kind of I mean the fact that the father is like you know the head of this company that is wreaking have wreaking havoc all across the world um is like deeply symbolic for um, there's like parallels in the way that he treats the mum and the way that he treats Ollie and the women in his lives um, and his like total callous disregard for the non-human world around him. Yeah. Wow. That's super interesting because I think you can feel the climate change um, aspect come into it, I guess, towards the end of the book when we're in Antarctica and that, but that's super interesting. I never really connected the the oil company and the climate change topic together. So yeah, that's really interesting. I have got a um, question about Antarctica coming a bit later, (laughs) but um, in the next section, we're going to be talking about sexual assault. So if this is triggering for any listeners, um, please skip past. So in the second part of the book titled Sea Monsters, 
Ollie is raped by one of the guys on the boat, which she's working on. In particular, I really appreciated your exploration of the concept of consent in these chapters. I feel like consent has only just started to be discussed in the last few years um, as opposed to all of this talk about um, sexual assault, but we haven't really talked as much about uh, consent and it's never really been a, a hot topic. But we did see in the media here in Australia very recently, the New South Wales Police Commissioner suggested a sexual consent app and there was a huge backlash to it and rightfully so, it's definitely not a perfect idea. But I can appreciate the fact that it's being discussed and nevertheless, nevertheless being discussed by a male Whereas I feel previously the concept of a consent has kind of fallen burden to females. So tell us why consent is a big theme in this book as opposed to having the, um, I guess, awareness of sexual assault as the big theme. Mm. Well, I think, um, and I'm hesitant to call this a myth because obviously it does happen. But this myth that sexual assault only occurs in the alleyway with this person that's in the periphery at the fringe of society, like a lone wolf attacker, this monster that's, you know, lurking in the shadows, um, it is a myth that that is the only space that sexual assault occurs in. And I think it's something like 85% of sexual assault occurs with somebody that you know. Um, and I was really interested in exploring what consent looks like when you do know the person and they're acting in a way that is crossing your boundary and they're not listening to you and you're writing a sentence with your body and watching them turn the page. And so I was really interested in like, what does that look like? Um, yeah. When it is someone that you know and someone that you're familiar with, because I think the biggest thing, um, sorry, sort of like the biggest question that Ollie's faced with is by one of the other men on, on the boat who asked her, but if you didn't want this, why didn't you just scream? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd been asked that question by someone that um, knew me when I spoke about sexual assault um, when I was younger. And I was like so fascinated by that question from like a sociological (laughs) point of view because I was like, um, yeah, why don't we? And so then I wrote like, why don't we scream? And so I wrote several essays that were published in various journals um, kind of over the years and then Below Deck was me then turning that that idea or that question and the exploration of its answer into fiction. Um, And I think the kind of conclusion that I drew, maybe not so much in Below Deck, but in the essay is that, or in the various essays was that I think it is kind of different when it's with someone that you know, because you trust them and you're giving them the benefit of the doubt and you're waiting perhaps in a way that you might not, if it was a stranger, you're waiting for them to realize that you were their friend or you were their partner or you are, you know, their acquaintance, but still somebody that has agency and that they are disrespecting that and abusing that. Um, and so I was, yeah, I was interested in in kind of exploring consent from that initial question of why don't you scream? Um, 
because I think and the other arm of this is that like how on and on what planet do we think a scream will necessarily save us um you know this person is inches away from you and maybe not listening to you saying no um and what's to say that you know if you're in a position where you're physically overpowered um or your body is shutting down or your body is freezing what's to say that like if if you are already in a position of weakness, and and I use that term lightly, but you know if this person has the capacity to overpower you physically, how how do you know that this you screaming is going to save you and not be the trigger that you know ends something for you, ends your life? Um, and so that that was like the questions that I kind of started off with, and and the other. I guess the other big reason why I wanted to talk about consent in this way in a situation that is um, like, as we have historically described it, like the murky water, the kind of grey area of consent, which I don't necessarily subscribe to, but that is, you know, what we've historically named this. So the, the other thing that I was interested in exploring is like if you participate at all um then like in this kind of murky area that we like the so-called murky area um I was interested in this response that I know is all too common with people who experience sexual violence is you know that moment of surrender in which you think if I give in to this like and if I participate this will be over quicker. I might not lose my life. You know, that that kind of tragic and heartbreaking surrender that so many people do. Um, and so I was interested in this idea of choice. And if you make the decision to do something or to go along with something and concede, then like, are you really making a choice in that moment if this is happening to you, whether you like it or not? And I was, yeah, I was just super interested in like that idea of agency and that for me personally, I made a decision when I was 23 to um, to go along with something because that seemed safer and also because I felt like me deciding and me making a choice somehow gave me a sense of agency in a moment that was completely out of my control. Mm-hmm. And so this like reoccurring question that Ollie asks herself throughout the novel is like, do we choose to breathe? Um, and that came from this talk that I heard at Oxford about free will, where uh, we were discussing a paper that someone had written um, or that a philosopher had written on free will. And the argument was that you don't make any decisions, but that you are like the culmination of all the experiences in your life amounting to this one moment and that it's not you actually making the decision because you are always influenced by everything that's come before you. And my friend that I was with, we were riding our bikes home from the talk and he was like, yeah, I agree with that. Like, I don't think we do ever make a decision. And I was like, I don't. Like, I I refuse to accept that we have no control over our lives. Um, But that was where... 
I started to really think about choice and what choices we make and what choices we cannot make because it's happening to us whether we make the choice or not. Um, and so, yeah, I thought about breathing a lot as a as a thing that we do that we're not always conscious of and yet in moments that take our breath away or in moments where we're fearful or particularly anxious, then we do actually in those moments have to fight to keep breathing um, and, you know, we have to come back to our breath and and keep inhaling and exhaling to be able to make it through that moment. Um, and so, yeah, I was just, that's where that came from. was super interested in, in choice um, and, and what consent you can or what consent you can give when it's happening to you, whether you consent or not. Yeah. Do you think like the feedback that you got from your readers of Below Deck, do you think most of them took away, I guess, the big topic as sexual assault as opposed to consent? Um, it seemed that like the aftermath of trauma seemed to be the big takeaway maybe. Um, I think that it's definitely facilitated like when I've when I've um, sort of listened in on book clubs like it's definitely facilitated big conversations around consent I know that when my publisher picked it up that that um, that they had a big conversation about consent in the room when they were deciding whether or not they wanted to publish it mm-hmm. um, and so I think the book has definitely facilitated um, conversations around consent and, and I hope that it will continue to but I do also think that, yeah, the main kind of takeaway that I've gotten from readers responding to it is that, um, like, their sort of thing that people seem to clutch onto the most is this, re- like, reclaiming your story and reclaiming your body and becoming the author once more of your own story. Um, and that kind of, like, making it through trauma or not necessarily through but you know learning to live with it and and be okay with it has has been sort of like the biggest takeaway that I think from feedback that readers have had Mm, yeah absolutely now another thing you chat about in the book which actually I think flies under the radar a bit is the notion of privilege and Mm. I'm going to give you an example of my own privilege, white privilege here, because I wrote this book in March 2020 when it was released and I don't even remember reading this part. Like, you know, I obviously did, but it didn't really click with me and I feel back then I wasn't aware of privilege as much as what I am now after the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, doing my own learning about it. So in particular, the discussion between Jules and Ollie was our eye-opener, which would be in section three, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ollie says to Jules, I've never really thought about being white. And Jules shrugs, I guess that's what privilege is. Can you tell us a bit about this? Yeah. So this, I mean, this was a conversation that I had probably with a friend several years ago. Um, that really directly informed this conversation between Ollie and Jules. And I guess it was like um, like me understanding my um, position as a white person came really, I think, 
and and not that I needed to experience a marginalized identity in order to understand this, but um, big, like I don't know, I guess discovering or acknowledging finally that I was queer um, positioned me to see that my experience is not the dominant story, um, and in a similar way, obviously not the same, but in a similar way, the dominant story um, or the status quo, you know, because white people have held power um, for a long time um, and yielded that power and, like, to devastating effect. And that, um, you know, because if you are white, you see yourself reflected in stories, you see yourself reflected in the media, you see yourself reflected in movies. Um, And so because your position has your body as a white body has never been othered, um, you can escape with the feeling that, you know, your experience is the norm because everything that you like consume tells you and that your experience is the norm by reflecting your experience back to you. Mm. And then to me, then looking for, queer texts or queer films um, showed me or kind of woke me up to the reality that if you're heterosexual, you also see yourself represented everywhere. And so there's not really any reason for you to think about being straight because the world is straight or, you know, the dominant story is heterosexual. Um, And so that, that then prompted my and fr- my friend and I to have this conversation um, ab- about race and about the dominant stories that get told, um, and what it means if you grow up and you never see yourself in that film or never read your experience in that book, um, and how important I guess the point was like how important representation is and for people. Um, who are of marginalised communities to be writing the stories that represent their experiences. Mm, Definitely, absolutely. Now, in the last section of the book, uh, Ollie travels to Antarctica and we get these images of human impact on the environment and climate change like we touched on before. Tell us about your Antarctica journey and how did you reflect this through Ollie's Antarctica journey? Mm. So Antarctica for me, like, changed me so fundamentally in ways that I'm still trying to unpack and understand. Um, I think I came into my body in a way that I never have before. Um, I jumped into the ocean in a bikini. Um, It was zero degrees. And I remember surfacing with this, like, just shock of cold um, and breathing in and feeling my all my ribs kind of expanded, almost feeling the oxygen like surge to every part of my body. Like I could literally feel it, like my senses were so heightened by the adrenaline of jumping in the water that, yeah, it was as if I could feel my breath moving entirely through me. And I think I really came into my body with this awareness and deep love for it that I'd never really experienced before. I think also the 
scale of the place and how incredibly huge the mountains were, how incredibly like huge the glaciers were um, and how small and insignificant it made me feel on one hand. And yet on the other hand, I felt myself becoming bigger um, and I felt myself expanding because there was just so much space to expand into. And I think so often women especially are made to feel small in so many ways and this was a place that I could be where I could just be huge and feel myself expanding and that was so exciting. I think the other thing was um, that like listening to glaciers carving, I experienced this kind of understanding of how like because the glaciers really they hold all of these tiny particles of air that tell stories of past worlds. And I loved this idea um, that glaciers are libraries of ice and therefore felt this kind of strange sadness when I saw them carving and all of this history was literally just like breaking off and dissolving into the sea, which of course is a natural phenomenon, but one that is being sped up and, um, and, you know, dramatically encouraged by or caused by climate change. Um, and so I think the biggest thing that Antarctica did for me was it sort of existing on planet time, you know, where what might take me five seconds to walk might take a glacier 20,000 years to move or, you know, you, you accident, you step on a bit of soil that your footprint will still be there in 2,000 years. And so like all of these things existing on planet time reduced my lifetime to this tiny little heartbeat. And then it really motivated me to think about what I'm going to do with this precious amount of um, finite time. And so, yeah, that was really the, the drive then to write Below Deck and to sort of write stories that would change or, or contribute to, you know, a global community in some way. Um, yeah, and then I think most of those sort of ways in which I felt changed then became the various things that happened for Ollie in Antarctica that really helped her to reclaim her body. Mm, that's really interesting. Now let's talk a bit about the ending but first of all, um, the writing style in the book, which we did touch on a bit before, but there are parts where you've played with the punctuation so that the sentence evokes emotion in the reader, in particular mm -hmm. the beginning of the book, which on rereading it is actually the end of the book. Is that correct? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> so in particular, I adored this particular sentence. I'm going to read it out loud if that's okay. And I want to get, yeah, your thoughts and how you constructed it and what's the emotion that we're meant to have at the end of it. So it's on page two um, and it starts like that. When I finally seen the green flash, it will be equally amazing and dull or that life is a series of words and the punctuation is in all the wrong places and when you want to take a breath, someone has removed the comma so you have to take one there and if you didn't too bad, it's already gone. Tell us about that. Yeah, so my, my interest in writing through the body 
um, and coming up with ways of writing that feel adequate to corporate, various corporal experiences. Um, I was interested in showing how trauma affects the body and how it fractures our memories and how it creates inconsistencies in our stories and was interested in showing that literally in the text. So breaking up the sentences um, and making them fractured and making them inconsistent was my way of like symbolising how trauma affects the body. And the other thing is like, I mean, maybe not so much when you read it in your head, but when you read a book out loud, having punctuation in unusual places forces you to take a breath where you otherwise wouldn't. And I really liked this idea because so much of the book is about choice and consent. I liked the idea that I was manipulating the reader in some way to take a breath when they wouldn't ordinarily or where they don't necessarily want to um, as a way to speak more broadly about consent and the choices that we make and the choices that we don't make. Yeah, wow. Because there's another part in the book, um, I don't have it tagged, but um, the writing is kind of drawn out in a sentence. I think it might be, is it we choose to breathe and it's drawn out across the page? Yeah, uh, I know, I know what you're talking about. I think it says on towards New Zealand. Oh, yes, yes. Sorry, it is too. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think if I'm right, I think it's in Sea Monsters. Um, and it's like when Ollie's become injured and the length of time between now and, and New Zealand is like stretching out and becoming impossibly long. And, yeah, so the text is literally stretched out. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I'd never seen that before and that was super interesting for me as a reader to go, oh, how am I going to, you know, like mentally read this and what am I going to take away from it? Mm. Yeah. Now, talking about that, we choose to breathe. What does this mean? Um, What should we be taking away as a reader from this? There was a bit of debate about the ambiguous ending of the book. What happens to Ollie from your perspective? Mm. Um, oh, I feel I feel <laughs> I've never been asked this, even though it's obviously very ambiguous. Um, certainly not been asked in an interview. Um, and I think I will leave you with a clue. Okay. <laughs> answer. Um, and that is that Maggie says quite early on that life is a series of happy and unhappy endings, but it is also a series of beginnings. I, I, I feel like it's, it's, it's a beginning, the end of the book. It's the beginning, yeah. yeah. Now to wrap up, what can we expect next from Sophie Hardcastle? So I'm working on my next book as part of my PhD um, and it is a story about two queer women from the age of 15 to their mid-40s um, and kind of takes you from the early 70s, uh, actually, no, sorry, their mid-50s because it takes you right up until the plebiscite in 2017. Um, so through a lot of social change um, and it's, yeah, I'm, 
don't know if I'd call it a love story, but it, um, it, it will be a lot about yearning and the body as a site of yearning. And I'm really excited by it. It's the first time I've ever written um, anything really that's queer. Um, so I feel like that's been a huge process of coming into myself and coming into my own truth and then having the confidence to share that publicly. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. And also Below Deck is coming out with a new cover as well, which is due to be released in July. How much input do you get as an author into the covers of the book? Uh, I had a lot of input actually into the first edition. Um, This one I didn't actually have any input because I just loved the draft or, you know, I I loved it immediately. Um, I think... Yeah, I think at the end of the day, the publishers have, you know, entire teams and so many brains behind covers um, that, and they, they know what works. Um, so I've always, for all of my books, I've really trusted. Um, but, I have, yeah, I did give quite a bit of input in Blow Deck and I was super, super, super happy with the book that we ended up with, the cover that we ended up with. Yeah, I must say... I can't choose a favourite between the two. Like I still really like the original one, (laughs) Um, which I guess is kind of representative of the ocean a bit more as the new one is more um, Ollie's like view of colour. Is that where that comes from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, Yeah, I'm really excited by that. Me too. I'll I'll be getting the new one as well. Sophie, thank you so much for joining me today. And Sophie's book Below Deck is published by Allen and Unwin and is available now. Or if you want to wait for the new cover, it's available in July. You can also follow Sophie on Instagram at Sophie underscore Hardcastle. So thank you again. Thanks so much for having me. What a joy. I had this book sitting on my shelf for months. I was reluctant to pick it up because I knew it covered some heavy terrain. But It was just brilliant. I'm so, so glad you picked it as your March book club pick because that gave me the motivation to read it. It was exquisite lyrical writing meets brilliantly executed characters. But most importantly, this was a book for right now that everyone should read. Sophie seeks to amplify women's voices through the trauma they face and the numerous ways they survive and reclaim their bodies and sense of self. While the book was heavy, it was also courageous and hopeful. I devoured the entire thing in one day. I just couldn't go to bed without knowing how it ended. This is my book of the year so far. Highly recommend it. If you enjoyed this episode, please let me know. You can subscribe and leave me a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or find me on Instagram at SoNovelPodcast. Thanks for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.